0: I typically look at the fact pattern. A lot of times, you know, if we're talking about representations in a purchase agreement, you know, a lot of times you can make them, you know, you you might have a knowledge qualifier. So seller to my knowledge. And that particular client, they may, I'll use an environmental example. They may have just done a phase one. They may have done some work. So they know there's absolutely no issues. Now, would I prefer to make no representation and have the seller do that? Sure. But, you know, if I'm the buyer, I'm coming in and that's something I want. So I may use qualifiers like that where I know I'm not really giving anything up, but I'm meeting the other side halfway. And if I'm able to kind of use that mindset where it may not be exactly perfect to my client, but it's not perfect for the buyer, if we meet in the middle, then we get the deal done.
1: You found the Real Estate Law Podcast because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Thanks again for listening to us. Jason Muth here with attorney broker Rory Gill from Next Home Titletown Real Estate in Urban Village Legal in Boston. Rory, we are of the deck with another real estate attorney for this episode.
3: So I am way outnumbered. Yep, yeah, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's a chance for me to compare notes with somebody on the opposite corner of the country about how the practice of real estate law really looks, what it looks like for clients, um, and walk you through the process. So Jason, do you want to introduce our guest? Yep,
2: today we're going to be talking about negotiating real estate deals and getting the terms you want without resorting to bullying or being a jerk and how to protect yourself when you're buying real estate, so you're getting good terms and what happens if you're partnering up with somebody and they disappear afterward. We have a lot of great ways that you're going to learn how to protect your assets and get good deals going into real estate deals. We'd like to welcome our guest. It is attorney Jeff Love from Los Angeles. Jeff, welcome. Thanks guys for having me. So Rory and I have a a friend, a good friend of ours, who's a Dr. Love. And now we have a friend who is attorney Love. Works really? out very well. Yeah. So Jeff, tell us a little bit about how's business these days?
0: We've been busy. I don't think it's slowed down the last 3 years. It's just been one type of deal after another. Since we help clients with leasing and purchases, syndications, different components of real estate transactions. If, you know, when leasing slowed down during COVID, we were still getting a lot of investors looking for deals. Now leasing's picking up a little bit. So, mm-hmm. it may shift a little bit, but it's been a constant stream of clients doing deals.
2: Yeah, things have not slowed down across the country just when everyone's predicting it. Uh, so it keeps everybody busy. You know, you're a partner with your firm. Have you been there since law school, since you graduated?
0: A Couple of years out, right after law school, uh, it was in 2008, 2009, so a little bit of a downturn. So I actually started my career with a real estate investment company, owning okay. about 20 million square feet of industrial and retail throughout the country. And then realized, I like that, but I want to work with different clients at different stages of their projects, different types of real estate. So I came over to, to my firm in 2013 and have been here ever since.
2: Right. Have you? Are you a native Californian? I am. All right. Hey, Rory, you probably have a list of questions as another real estate attorney, so I'll let you kick
3: it off. Just kind of build off of the current trends or things. So, you know, businesses is still relatively strong is what you're reporting, but, you know, what shifts have you seen? Because certain components of the of the real estate market, commercial space, residential space are all behaving very differently. So what are some trends that you've seen in the business?
0: One is office, which you can probably expect, even in Southern California, you know, we're still at probably 50% occupancy. Um, tenants are starting to go back to their office spaces, but nothing like it was. We're seeing a lot more concessions from landlords, not necessarily lowering rent because they want to maintain their cap rates in case of you know sales, but a lot more concessions, free rent, TIs, no guarantees. That's kind of expected. Industrial is still incredibly hot, both from leasing and sales. You can't find it in Southern California. That's been hot. That's staying hot. And we're seeing a lot of investors starting to move out of the state. We're getting more and more rent control. We now have statewide rent control. There's constantly bills being proposed to even chip away at that and make everything rent controlled. So I have a number of clients selling their multifamily buildings and going to other geographic regions in that same asset class or just being done with multifamily completely, trying to find you know triple net retail, other types of property, short-term rentals to kind of allocate risk and get out of the state. Well, I'm
2: guessing they're not going to be coming to Boston because that's being proposed here too, right, Murray?
3: Unfortunately, we've had a statewide ban on rent control for decades. And now the city of Boston is starting to chip away at that in kind of a misguided effort to address the the housing shortage. So, you know, hopefully we won't be seeing the same problems come here in the future. You know, that's in, kind of interesting to talk about California because mm-hmm. when we're Real estate gets t- talked about on a national basis. Some people kind of almost take with glee an exodus from California, people leaving the state. Is that reporting overblown or is there some truth to that? I actually just read an article on it yesterday. A lot of
0: it's overblown. People are obviously leaving, but people are coming in as well. It is harder to do business. Uh, we do, you know, a lot of corporate work as well. And the amount of regulations that you have to comply with, not just for our real estate business, but in general makes it difficult. But, you know, I'm biased because I'm here, but, you know, you have a place where you can, within three hours, you can go to the mountains, to the beach. You have good weather besides, you know, traffic. It's still a good place. People are always going to be here. We have a good tech base in Southern California now too. And as long as you have those businesses, you're still going to need the retail, still going to need multifamily. You know, we have a new Amazon warehouse, probably a mile from my own home. So industrial. So all, all those combined, you, you've still got people here not kind of leaving as you you hear in the news
2: you would think that there's a huge mass exodus to places like idaho and montana and you know all these areas that have plenty of land that californians want to escape the big city but if that's not necessarily the case you know that's an interesting counterpoint to what the news makes you want to believe
0: you certainly have people leaving colleagues and clients that are but the deals that you used to find, going to some of those places, going to say, you know, Phoenix was was a big mm-hmm. one. It's not the same cheap housing that it once was. So your your money, you know, it's still going a lot farther than California. But you know, to uproot families and go, it's not to the same degree that I think you're reading about in the news. Because people mm-hmm. still have businesses here; they're still stuck here. There's still real estate deals to be found. Um, it just depends on what you're looking for.
2: Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned, you know, as we were preparing for the episode, uh, and I, I alluded to this early on, you know, the topic of negotiating real estate and getting the terms you want without resorting to bullying or coming off as a jerk. Like, what are what are a couple of suggestions that you have that you've seen in your experience? People that are looking to acquire properties in whatever asset class where favorable terms for themselves, but they're also coming out of the negotiation where people are patting each other on the backs.
0: I think it's a couple points, and I have one on my desk right now where the other side just sent over a completely one-sided purchase agreement for about a thousand acres of vacant land. The remedies are all twisted. You know, For example, the seller, the only remedy if the seller breaches the deal is for the buyer to terminate, which isn't fair. The buyer spent all this money on due diligence. Seller did something wrong. Buyer, seller refuses to buy the property. Buyer has no recourse other than to terminate. When we read that, we say, you know, that's not right. That's not the way to do it. And in the and same deal, the seller making no representations as to the property, different type of deed that's kind of standard in California. So when you read all those, red flags kind of go off for the buyer. Why is the seller acting like this? Now, if there's specific concerns for, for default or representations, I think curate that section to alleviate it, but you don't make it so one-sided to alienate the other party. And you also are open to negotiating it. You know, say, I've got a lot of deals where this, the one party may say, you know, that's a deal breaker. You know, that's that's hard and fast. We we can't negotiate that. And it's a turn off to the other side without even hearing their concerns or seeing if there's a middle ground. Now, that should, it may turn out not to be one, but I think a lot of the successful deals that we have, have parties that are putting kind of their, you know, reasonable hat on and are listening to the other side rather than just saying, these are my deal terms, take it or leave it. And a lot of that's probably common sense, but you hear it you know you hear about these bad deals a lot more often and if people just took that mindset going in and trying to make it work for both sides um i think we'd have a lot more successful deals
3: i've seen a lot more of those coming on now with the tight inventory where The seller side will purport that no negotiation is possible. This is the only form of agreement that we're going to take. And of course, that's never true. Um, Everything is always negotiable and it should be. But, you know, if you're in the seller's attorney position at that moment, you have, you know, an ethical obligation to your client to be a zealous advocate of their interests. How do you temper that obligation with coming up with a first draft of the agreement that is rational to the other side? I typically look
0: at the, the the fact pattern. A lot of times, you know, if we're talking about representations in a purchase agreement, you know, a lot of times you can make them, you know, you, you might have a knowledge qualifier. so seller to my knowledge. And that particular client, they may, I'll use an environmental example. They may have just done a phase one. They may have done some work. So they know there's absolutely no issues. Now, would I prefer to make no representation and have the seller do that? Sure. But, you know, if I'm the buyer, I'm coming in and that's something I want. So I may use qualifiers like that where I know I'm not really giving anything up, but I'm meeting the other side halfway. And if I'm able to kind of use that mindset where it may not be exactly perfect to my client, but it's not perfect for the buyer, if we meet in the middle, then we get the deal done. Because and I have clients like that, you know, I want to win just a win in the sense mm-hmm. where my purchase agreement, I've got the you know upper hand, I've got the leverage. But what you do is you may turn off certain buyers and- We all know, you know, that one buyer that offers the best price isn't always the best buyer. You know, they may take the 45 days of due diligence or 30 days and try to renegotiate or back out. So I want the client to explore the market, make sure that they're getting the best deal possible and tempering some of that expectation, maybe giving up a little bit is how we usually get there.
2: So when you're working with buyers, what are some things that you recommend as to ways they can protect themselves if they're doing like a commercial deal, whether it's, you know, a small multifamily or a large commercial property?
0: The two things I always want them to look at, and then a kind of a third silly one is the representations and the limitation of liability. The representations are where that we get to know what the seller knows. We're obviously going to go in and do our own due diligence, but there are things we may not know about. You know, the seller may have you know, history with the property. They may have made some side deal with the tenant. That you know, maybe it's in a tenant stopple, maybe it's not. But that's our chance to figure out what. So we know what the seller knows. So focus on those. Maybe you know, if it's a unique deal, what do we want to know, and try to put those representations in the deal. And in terms of limitation of liability, that's one we get a lot. And obviously, the seller wants to cap their liability when they sell the property. They want to walk away but there are things in due diligence process that we may not discover until we get into the property. So we really wanna make sure that that cap, if we agree to a cap on the seller's liability, that that's gonna protect us from potential claims. Um, And taking a look at that, not just saying, you know, listening to the seller 3% standard or 5%, but making sure the dollar amount is gonna protect us and looking at that in conjunction with those representations. Those are the two areas we negotiate a lot. The silly one, Take a look at the notice provision of some of these purchase agreements. I've had a handful of clients go down to, you know, 4.55 on a five o'clock deadline and think I can just email it. But the notice provision says, Hey, you got to send it through overnight courier or mail or some other mechanism. Just making sure you understand how you have to deliver notices in these deals. And nine times out of 10, it's easy. It's no issue. But that one time, you never want to get caught up on an issue like that where you potentially waive your contingencies because you can't get notice out in time because you never looked at that looked at that provision that hey it's all it's all standard it's all the same
3: particularly in the residential space we are used to having these common forms at least here and i presume it's the similar thing um, in california where a lot of the forms are customary even a lot of the edits are very pro forma and customary across the transactions but when you're taking a look at it, how important is it for your clients to really customize it to the, the particular deal? You're talking about the notice provision there, where if you just kind of adopt language that was given to you, you might actually end up with a real substantive issue. What are some of the other provisions that that people should commonly look over and alter from the the standard language? Good question and good point. You know, for California, at
0: least, our residential transactions, kind of the one to four unit properties are pretty standardized. The California Association of Realtors, that form is used 99 out of hundred times probably with residential transactions. But once you get above that, or you start dealing with commercial deals, you know, all bets are off. You know, you could have an 80 page custom agreement from a seller, or you could have some type of standardized broker form. Um, but the ones that, you know, you want to look at even in the standard forms is still looking at the notice provision. It may be standard. But if you don't understand that provision if you know if your attorney didn't, or broker didn't go over it with you and you blow deadlines it doesn't matter if it was a standard provision or not because you never read it but with the standard forms there's a lot of checking the boxes and a lot of brokers you know may gloss over it too quickly and things get missed things don't get checked so when you're looking at standard forms and say really look at the sections that are customizable and you can check the boxes and make sure that you know residential deals is there any personal property that was supposed to be included? Are there appliances for this duplex that you're buying? You know, and they didn't check the washer and dryer. It's a small monetary dispute, but still it's one that you don't need to have if you took the time to check those.
3: The residential transactions are, you know, Relatively straightforward, um, at least compared to the others. You know, and there's just the tension between the seller who is trying to solidify the deal as much as possible to make sure that there is there are as few outs as possible. Whereas the on the buyer side, you're trying to preserve your right to do more due diligence and to back out of the deal as many points as you possibly can. So it's the standard tension we have, and we have kind of the common things in the residential transactions. But when you're go into the commercial space, there are a lot more phases of due diligence, You know, environmental things you just don't have on the, the residential side. What are some of the big things that someone who's maybe new to the commercial space should be looking for in their due diligence phase? Title becomes a lot more important,
0: you know, because we're dealing with commercial. So there may be other types of easements through the properties that you may not find in a residential area. There may be, you know, different types of, of, of liens on the property. So you really want to make sure that you're actually looking at that title commitment to understand what you're getting. There are endorsements you can get to a title policy that a lot of times with commercial deals have a lot more practicality, you know, than the residential uh, residential deals. So you really want to look at title. You may want to look at a survey, you know, especially if there are any type of, you know, boundary issues And you're trying to do a development, you may want to actually really understand if there's any encroachments, any type of issues you may have to deal with. And that goes kind of hand in hand with title. The other two that I see a lot of are, you know, just kind of skipping over environmental. You know, with a home, it may not be an issue, but when you're buying a commercial property, you may be next to a dry cleaner's or across the street from a gas station, and you want to make sure there's there's no issues, you know, there's no underground you know, groundwater migration. There's no chemicals in the dirt where you're gonna buy this property and now you're gonna spend you know, X amount of dollars doing remediation because you didn't actually do the diligence and understand that maybe the property's, property's dirty. The, the last issue I see, you know, a lot, you know, especially with new investors don't really know what they are is where you can chime in is a tenant estoppel certificate. And what that is, is, you know, I may be buying a 10-unit apartment building and I've got all my leases, but I don't know what's not in the leases. You know, does the seller have any type of side deal? And that estoppel certificate is basically a document where I go to the, I as the buyer or the seller, go to the tenant and have them confirm certain statements that are in the lease that are accurate. You know, this is the rent, this is the term so that the tenant can't later say, oh, you know, sorry, new owner. But the prior owner said, I have a 10-year lease at $100 a month. You say, no, you sign this to stop a certificate and you can't, you can't change your mind. You know, you're stopped from denying what you represented in there. And why that's important is because maybe I have a claim against the seller. You know, if I had representations and they were breached, but now I'm still stuck with that tenant. I've got a monetary claim against the seller, but I don't want that. My plan was to tear down the property and rebuild it. And now I'm stuck with a tenant with a 10 year lease. So you so, really want to make sure you're doing those certificates and understand them.
3: You know, so I, I presume though that we don't just wait until we're about to close to ask for the um, estoppel certificates. Um you must ask for that in the original agreement with the seller and obligate the seller to gather to gather these estoppel certificates. Is that right?
0: We do. A lot of this is negotiated in the purchase agreement because you know, if it's a hundred unit apartment building, the seller may not be able to get them from everyone. So maybe it's an 85% threshold and the seller can do the last 15%. You know, but I want to make sure they're obligated to do that. And all of these items are things we want to do during our due diligence period. So if the results aren't what we expect or want, we have the right to terminate the deal and get our deposit back.
2: Shift a little bit over to partnerships and joint ventures, you know, so not necessarily what's in the contract of what you're buying, but the contract between the people that are putting the money together or building the business or the LLC or, you know, limited partnerships. What are some things that you'd recommend people look for if they're entering into any of these types of partnerships and putting money up?
0: Especially if it's one, you know, two, three partners, a smaller deal. You know, we have our management company, we're putting together the deal. A lot of times I get clients, you know, here's my legal Zoom operating agreement. Here's my form operating bring him, this person did. And a lot of times they're fine, but you get what you pay for in the sense that they're not customized to you. And a lot of times we'll get partners, you know, maybe one's younger, maybe one's older, maybe a life event happens, but eventually, you know, they, they would you need a business divorce. You know, someone, someone dies. Do I want to be in business with my ex-partner's spouse or a kid? You know, maybe I don't get along with them. And without having some type of mechanism in that agreement, now we have a fight. And potentially it, it it could be easy. It could be nasty. So a lot of times what we'll look for in these agreements is what's called a buy-sell agreement, basically your business prenup. And we may go through certain triggering events. You know, what happens on you when know, one of our deaths, a, a divorce? What if one of us just want to exit the business? You know, I, I'm I'm 65. I want to retire. My partner's 30. They're not ready for that yet. Um, And make sure we we talk about it beforehand when everything is good and we're entering into the deal so that it's still a difficult conversation, but it's much easier to have rather than when there's a fight or some life event happened and I'm dealing with an ex-spouse. So that way it doesn't disrupt my business. And we've figured out how we're going to resolve these situations early on in the partnership. Yeah, sometimes people can get
2: caught up in the excitement of getting into a partnership and a deal and they might forget to protect themselves, you know, on the exit. Uh so it's always good to take a step back and pause and and plan for situations that are just off our radar, right? You know, if you're 20, 30, 40 year old, even 50, 60, you're you're not planning to die, right? But, you know, if if something like that were to happen, what happens to your business what happens to your partnership you know it's all about asset protection before we get to some of our final questions i had to ask about these 5 w's of real estate asset protection what are they
0: when i get new clients or new investors it's really you know back in elementary school who what when where why so yeah. the questions i get are, you know do i need an llc who and we talk about you know what when is it practical to form one it, you may not always need one but you get the asset protection from it. You know, what what type of what type of entity am I using? The limited partnership, partnership, LLC. Um, when am I creating it? Should I do it before I sign an LOI, before the purchase agreement, before I close? Um, you know, and where? I get that question a lot. You know, I'm in California. Do I form it here? Do I form it in Nevada, Wyoming, Delaware? you know, and each situation is different, but you really want to, before you go out and you create these entities or spend money, that's when, you know, a real estate attorney or your advisor comes in and can really go through these kind of five W's even the how, how do I create it to make sure that you're forming the right entity, the right place, the right time for your specific project.
2: Yeah. So don't just go to chat GPT and legal zoom and call it a day. That's why we have esteemed legal attorneys like the two of you, Rory and Jeff, to give the right guidance and use your expertise to actually, you know, predict a situation that you might not even know is going to happen. Um, Rory, any final thoughts for Jeff before we get to our final questions?
3: No, um, I just want to say, you know, you've you've touched on very, you know, very briefly um, all the the value that a real estate uh, that a real estate attorney brings to the transaction, um, and it's. Not necessarily just mechanical. There are a lot of ways that you advise. Um, We have the advantage in Massachusetts as being an attorney state for closing. So everybody who's buying or selling real estate is almost forced to engage us um, along the way. I know California is a title company state. What's the pitch that you make to people who are skeptical that they even need an attorney involved in the transaction? Another good
0: question. And a lot of times they're not. If you go to a good attorney and you're not needed. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the first one to tell a client, you don't need me yet. Uh, you don't need me at all. We add value with new investors or seasoned investors by being able to negotiate deals and tell you about terms that you may not know about, avoiding the pitfalls, the red flags that we've seen through prior experience that maybe you haven't. But a good attorney, you know, they're gonna add value and you may not see it at the outset. But when we get that call, you know, six months, a year, 18 months later, oh, my gosh, you know, this happened. My contractor did this. The seller did this. I'm so glad we had that contract. You, you know, you saved me all this money or you, you got me the deposit back because you put that language in this deal. That's when we add the value. And a lot of times you may not see it up front, but you're you know, almost like insurance. You know, you're paying for it now. You don't get the value until you need it. Sometimes that's the case with attorneys too. We're advising to help you avoid the risk to make sure that the deal goes according to plan.
2: Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're doing a deal and you don't think you need an attorney, put one in your back pocket, make a relationship, call around, ask around who you use, go on the forums on bigger pockets, Facebook, whatever, and find somebody and build these relationships. Uh, thankfully I just asked Rory, (laughs) it's easy for me, but not everyone has that luxury. So, and you know, what you don't know you need, you don't know going into the deal, but if you're doing your first deal, you need to have legal representation or somebody that actually you can have a conversation with and also value their time is one thing I'll say I'm the non-attorney on here, but we all have the friends or family that just have that one quick question, right? Hey, can I just ask you a quick legal question? I'm sure you get that question all the time, Jeff, right? Maybe you'll maybe you'll answer it, maybe not. Maybe you'll say, listen, I'm not your attorney. I can't really officially say this, but you know, we get it. All of our time is valuable. At some point, you should pay these people for just that quick question, right? Let's get to our final questions and then we'll uh, learn where people can reach mm-hmm. out to you, Jeff, if they want to learn more about you and your practice or have questions. Uh, we ask these of all of our guests who come on the podcast just to tie things up and uh, learn more about you. First question, if you can get on stage mm-hmm. for half an hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation. What would that be?
0: Oh that's a good question. Probably baseball. I've always loved it and I'm getting more into it now. I have a seven year old so it's been little League. it is I'm coaching his team and it is a part-time job. Mm-hmm. So I'm still learning about little you know nits and things that I never knew, but th- that would be something I'd be good at and enjoy that talk. Did you play growing up? Not very well. I was always through about little League through maybe maybe yeah. beginning of high school and after that I my, my skill level just kind of ended.
2: It's interesting people finding their way to baseball because a lot lot of people like myself find our way away from baseball, you know, as time has gone on, but they just put um, a number of new rules in Major League Baseball these days with the pitch clock and and try to keep the game a little bit more exciting. Uh, Once you're a coach for a seven-year-old, you see it a whole different way. I mean, like part of that part-time job is probably organizing the parents and corralling all the kids and teaching some of those mechanics on the field because seven is that age that they actually start learning the strategy, you know, instead of just going up to T-ball and smacking the ball and then having seven kids run at the ball, <laughs> which is what T-ball basically is. And they learn the rules it, it's,
0: this year has been exciting because a lot of the players on this team, you know, they couldn't name one professional. They just didn't know about baseball. And now mm-hmm. towards the end, they're naming all these players on these different teams and you see them learn, you see them get better. And that, that to me is, it was exciting and make it, make it all worth it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was a huge baseball fan through the eighties and into half the 90s also i grew up outside new york so i was a big new york yankees fan despite the fact that i live in boston rory's a big red sox fan uh and that was a very fever pitched and exciting rivalry for a long time and then the 2000s came and the red sox finally won and it became a little bit less less fervor people are still very excited about baseball in boston i mean like that family park is always sold out you must go to the dodgers you know and see are you a dodgers fan yes yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's LA Coliseum is, is that the stadium, right? LA Coliseum? the Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Dodger stadium. I'm sorry. Dodger Stadium. That's a, a fun place to watch games. But I used to know all the players on all the teams back in the day. And then Rory and I played um, adult rec softball for a long time afterward. And I think that most of my career playing and being involved well with softball, I didn't watch baseball at all, which is weird. It's very strange, you know, but like, you know, you still know the rules and, I think if I were to go back out there and and coach a game again this year, uh, man, I'd be screaming and know
0: exactly what to do. So I I will say quickly, the new games are, they're a lot of fun. That pitch clock, it's changed a lot, but they're a lot quicker and it's easier for even non-baseball fans to kind of sit through it because it's, it's more active. It's quicker.
2: And they sell beer later in the game now too, as a result. (laughs) (laughs) Second question we have, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today.
0: One of my father's you know, business associates, he was a real estate developer. Um, and that when I met him and kind of he actually developed buildings, you know, and you say you're investing in real estate, different things, but he built buildings from the ground up. And I thought it was the coolest thing. You know, you make something out of nothing. It had actually models in his office. And that I think that event meeting him and seeing that was really where I got the real estate bug. And I wanted to go to law school to actually learn about you know, real estate and contracts with the goal of being an investor and developer. Um, and somewhere in the last 10, 15 years, I'm like, I love that. But I actually oh, yeah. like advi- advising clients more in all the different types of their projects and kind of being behind the scenes.
2: It, how old were you at that point? Do you remember? Or ballpark?
0: Early teens,
2: yeah. 11, 12. The path that you're on right now, is this the path that you envisioned like in
0: high school? With that modification, I think I always wanted to be in real estate. I think yeah. as a developer and being, you know, doing the deals myself. And now I'm the attorney kind of behind the developers. But, you know, with that modification, I think, yeah, I went to, you know, college with the mindset to go to law school, to learn about contracts, to go into the real estate business.
2: That's fascinating. Also, again, if, if you're listening and you have, you know, like, Pre teens or teenagers, think about how impressionable that one thing might be for their entire pathway and their entire career. You know, I know for me, I went to Brown University and I went there because I went to go visit relatives in Rhode Island when I was probably 13 years old and I had a great trip and I loved it and I wanted to get to Ivy League school and I looked into Brown and Sure enough, that was like the the one that I set my mind on from that point forward. And, you know, all these years later, I don't, you know, I'll visit every so often, but, you know, you're proud of your alma mater. So I could say I went to that school because of that one little thing when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Same thing with you. Wow. Yeah. Final question we have tell us something that you're listening to or watching or reading these days. I'm reading mainly
0: children's books, to be honest. I've I've got three. So, you know, you name one of these different series, that's, that's basically what I'm reading. When I get a little free time, which isn't rare, I tend to go back and reread some of my favorites, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. you know, very famous book. I probably try to read that once a year. And the reason I go back and read the same books is, you know, I always learn something new when I go back to it. And those those are the my business books, you know, so to yeah. speak, you know, that, that the, the four hour work week, I, I learn things from them. They help me deal with, negotiate with other people and other people's mindsets. And then my parent books, you know, how to deal with your kids, you know, even if you don't have kids, some of those books are actually good. They teach you how to deal with, you know, uncontrollable toddlers. Well, just change that to toddler and make it, you know, the attorney on the other side, the other, you know, the the broker, the, the business person, it's dealing with mm-hmm. people, how to put yourself in their shoes. And I think it makes you a better negotiator, better deal maker.
2: My father just sent me Andy Cohen's new book, which he just wrote. He's got, I guess, two kids now. And I haven't seen him on the talk show circuit because we watch a lot of kids programming these days, as I'm sure you do. But uh, I guess Andy has been talking about saying it's like negotiating with a terrorist over and over. And I'm like, huh, it kind of is. We have a four-year-old and like, you know, she is in that stage. You know that stage. I don't know if you have a four-year-old or not, but you've certainly had them. I do. Yeah. She's in that stage where she's empowered to just, you know, test you. And push the buttons and see the limits. It is. You have a a favorite kids' Mm -hmm. book that's the most tolerable.
0: I can't remember the name of it, but there's this silly new pigeon book, kind of all the rage. Mm -hmm. I I think we've read it probably thirty times. I don't know that I'd say it's tolerable, but they they (laughs) they tend to really like it, and they are less of a terrorist when we read it, and they're happy, quiet. (laughs) So I check out this. As I said, I'm blanking on the name, but there's this book about pigeons.
2: Is that the guy that does Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus? Yes. Yeah. Um Rory, isn't he from Boston or up here?
3: I don't know. I wasn't ready for that surprise question. <laughs> Mo Willems. I don't know where he's but, from. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We're 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 into the what would Danny do series. So Anyhow, Jeff, this has been a pleasure of a conversation. Uh, you know I, I always like the question at the end because they kind of humanize some of the conversation as well. you know we're all talking about legal work and protecting ourselves and getting into good deals and you know high- level attorneys but you know one thing that we should all remember with the people that we meet in our our travels is that we all have other lives too. You know and you know jeff you have kids you're talking about little league uh even a high level attorney uh los angeles based attorney like yourself sometimes you know just being on the field with the kids is you know where you'd probably either rather be or what you'd want to talk about and we all have those sides of our lives too we should all remember that jeff where can people reach out to you if they want to learn more about you
0: i think the easiest place is probably check out our website it's gibsgetin.com and it's got my bio phone number email I'm hey. always, always happy to chat we will put that in the show notes. Rory, apparently uh,
2: there's a sirens outside. What's going on there?
3: No, it's just a truck right outside my window. Um, yeah. So you can come find me in the office, which is right on a busy road, or you okay. could um, look at me through my law practice. That's Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com, um, or my uh, real estate uh, brokerage, Next Home Title Town. That's nexthometitletown.com. Awesome. All
2: that stuff will go into our show notes. There'll be links there. You can easily find everything that you need. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we really appreciate comments, five-star reviews. Uh, If you want to be a guest on the podcast, please reach out to me jason at nexthometitletown.com and we'll get you started, get you scheduled. Uh, Yeah, Rory, Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks for being two real estate attorney guests and offering up all that great advice that I'm sure that we will all heed and rewind and listen uh, once again over and over as we do lots of great deals and protect ourselves as we're trying to grow our assets. So thanks again and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Titletown, greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.